Liam and I went to the Mall of America, and as we're wandering around on the ground, I see a little pamphlet, a little flyer. Do you remember these? A little religious tract? Do you sometimes still see them? And what they are is they're just a little flyer that's designed, really designed to scare people into trying to make a decision for Jesus. And they'll ask questions like, if you were to die tonight, or have you heard of Jesus? And there's some random verses on the back. Uh, on this one, um, the, the front depicted this skyline of Washington, D.C., but all the buildings were being blown up. Now, all right, it gets your attention. And then in giant font was the statement, now the end begins. And below that was the question, are you ready for what happens next? And I'm thinking to myself, am I ready for the White House to be blown up? No, I don't have a contingency plan for that. That's not normal. And it sounds like it's going to be a movie trailer. It sounds like you're going to be watching, you know, Tom Cruise and Mission Impossible 14. But anyway, on the back are these verses. And what this is, is this is a very specific reading of the book of Revelation that in their understanding, evidently, they see the end of the world, or at least the end of the U.S., and this is kind of what it looks like. And they're trying to help you understand you need to be prepared for what is coming. And, and I must have missed the chapter in Revelation as I've been studying that has the Washington Monument being blown up. But two, two observations, finding this, this random tract in, uh, in the Mall of America this week. Number one, I'm genuinely surprised. You go to the airport and you utter the word bomb and you're going to get to spend some time in the airport, but evidently you can walk around the mall handing out pictures of very important places being blown up. I was, I'm genuinely surprised that people could do that. But two, this wrong way of reading the book of Revelation is incredibly common. It's popular and incredibly common. There have been series and, and, and uh, endless books, fictionalized books, written about this way of approaching the book of Revelation that is something to do with in 2022 or in our lifetime, in our section of the hemisphere, everything is going to happen in our future. And we talked about last week that that's not the, the smart approach to the book of Revelation. In fact, what we tried to talk about last week is how we read this book is as important, really, truly, as what we read. How we approach it is as important as what we're reading inside it. And I understand why it's popular. I mean, what sounds more exciting? Does it sound more exciting to say to people like, hey, Revelation is a thoughtful, thoughtful, intricate piece of literature that is encouraging Christians to be faithful in difficult circumstances? Or is it more exciting to say Washington, D.C. is going to blow up? What's more attention-grabbing? And so you can see why people really get into this, why their imaginations are sparked by this approach to the book of Revelation, thinking that these things are actually going to happen. I get it. I totally get it. So how we read is as important as what we read. And what we tried to say essentially last week is that Revelation reveals reality, that the way the world presents itself the truths we're taught maybe aren't true. The ways that our world is telling us that you need to be satisfied and fulfilled and find purpose and happiness maybe aren't real. We're nearly two generations in to a nationwide experiment of trying to encourage people to just follow their hearts every whim. Don't let anybody else tell you that there are borders to morality, that there are choices that are good and bad. You define right and wrong for yourself. We're two generations into a nationwide experiment of that. And guess what? 
everybody's happy in our country. It's worked. No, of course not. People are miserable. And instead of saying, hey, maybe we should question the assumption, people are doubling down on it. They're saying, no, no, no. The problem is, is we haven't followed every whim uh, to the nth degree. Instead of questioning the assertion, we're just doubling down. We haven't been morally relative enough. Last week, I encouraged you to read Revelation chapters 1 through 3. Today, we're going to focus on chapters 4 and 5. And chapter 4 is just 11 verses. So I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's just 11 verses. I know you can do it, but it probably would help if you bring out your phone or you bring out your Bible and actually turn to the last book of the Bible and turn to chapter 4. And let's read this. I'll give you a second. And it'll be on the screen, so please follow along with me. This is John. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. It's unusual. After the voice I first heard in chapter 1, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone an emerald encircled like shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne there were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder in front of the throne. Seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. All right, this is different. This is unusual. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, as clear as crystal. In the center around the throne, there were four living creatures, and they, were, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. All right. Weird. This is a little strange. A door into the throne room of heaven. Several years ago, Karina uh, and I took a vacation to Mexico, and we found this deal where this guy would give us a crash course in scuba diving for real cheap, and then we would get to go scuba diving. It's a great idea, right? Because if there's anything that you want to do is you want to be deep underwater, completely ill-prepared for this. You know, we're totally unlicensed, but we're young and dumb. I would still do it, by the way, but we were young and dumb, dumber, and, uh, and did it. So we got, I don't know, a couple hours training for this, and I loved it. I loved it. Kareen hated every second of it. It still gives her nightmares. But we put the mask on, put the, put the oxygen tank on, fell backwards into the ocean. We were kind of in this 
Bay, just off the coast, but it was a pretty busy area, um, and started to go down. And now, at first, you're just sort of focused on like your your oxygen meter and your depth meter. I don't know the actual words because I wasn't trained very well. But whatever thing that tells you how low you're going, you're just kind of focused on figuring out can I actually breathe. And we ended up sinking lower than we were supposed to. Our guide said we were supposed to only go down about 30 feet, and we ended up at, down at about 60 feet, which was way low. And there's a lot of pressure. And so, anyways, I'm just all concerned with all these little details. And then at some point, I stop and I look up, and it's just mind-boggling the amount, the vastness of the water above you, and the fish, and the boats, and the noise. I mean, even down that deep, you could hear the roar of the the, the motors on the boats going over you. It was just this unbelievable thing. It was so weird to a couple hours earlier just be skimming across the top of the water and then to be down there and to realize there's this whole world down below you that you don't think about, that you don't pay attention, that you don't realize you're, you're mostly, you know it's there, but you're mostly unaware of it. You and I are usually submerged in our day-to-day lives. We're just doing our thing. You're, you've got dirty laundry you got to take care of and fold. You've got car repairs and work deadlines and soccer practices and insurance claims. Just the day-to-day normal tedium of life. And I think that we forget that there's this whole spiritual reality that every once in a while we get to see glimpses of. John got to go through a doorway and see this, this vast throne room of God that always exists, but we get caught up in the normal routine of life. You know what I mean? We're just not thinking about it. But there are times. There are times where we look up. Something draws our eyes up. Maybe it's someone goes through some crisis and you're praying for them and there's an answer to prayer. And you stop for a moment and you realize, whoa, there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual universe that I don't pay attention to on a daily basis. Uh, maybe you have a friend or a child who was who, a grown child who was going down a dark path and you were hoping that they could pull out of that nosedive that they were in, and they do, and you just see their life turning around, and you celebrate, and you're excited, and you you could kind of, in your mind, play out how their life was going, but then you could see they got it turned around, and you can thank God for that. You can acknowledge this larger spiritual reality. Maybe it's as simple as a baby being born. It's just hard to not have some, wow, life is bigger than the sum of its parts experience when when you're witnessing a, a new life entering into the world. Maybe it's as simple as getting lost in a piece of music or seeing the northern lights. We understand the mechanics of each of those things, but the experience points to something larger and broader. Like there is a reality that we don't acknowledge every day. And John gets to see this doorway open into heaven and he gets to see See God's throne room. He gets to see the craziness, the four living beings, the 24 elders, and he can't even describe it. Words fail. He just keeps saying, it was like this. It looked kind of like this. It seemed it was an appearance as this. His mind cannot completely process what he's seeing, and he has a hard time describing that experience just like it is. Have you ever pulled out your phone and you see like, oh, a rainbow. That was really cool, and you pull out your phone. I want to capture this. Is this going to look good? And then the picture on your phone just looks stupid. Right? And you, uh, hey, look, I saw this rainbow. And they're like, yeah, that looks like a blurry thing. And your thumb's in front of the, the little, you know, it looks terrible. You can never, like a full moon, 
and you're looking at it and you're like, whoa, it's low on the horizon and it just looks so big and it looks so beautiful. I'm going to take a picture of this on my iPhone and it looks terrible. Or fireworks, right? You're experiencing fireworks. Nobody wants to see your pictures of fireworks. It's just better to enjoy them and experience them. You know what I mean? But there are things in life that point to the larger spiritual reality that we cannot see. In Revelation chapter 4, it's strange. It is strange. It's a human trying to describe this different world that exists that we don't normally get to see glimpses of in its fullness. Human vocabulary just can't, can't capture. Now, like we mentioned last week, a lot of what John says is derived from language in the Hebrew Bible. So you've got a combination in this chapter of places like Ezekiel 1, where these four creatures are described, or Exodus 19 is Mount Sinai, where God descends on the mountain and you have the thunder and the lightning and God's presence on the mountain, or Isaiah 6, where Isaiah gets a glimpse of this throne room of God, and you remember the angels, the room was shaking with the sound of their voice. I mean, just unbelievable. We're usually just down in day-to-day, -day, right? And every, everything takes us out of it. Even if for a moment we begin to look up, somebody's phone goes off. Or your child has a dirty diaper. We just get it for glimpses. And those, those moments are gifts, but we don't, they don't last. They don't last. And what John is doing is sparking the imagination. Yes, life is diapers and bills and doctor's visits, but that's not all it is. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, he says, Our goal is to fix our eyes on those things that we cannot see. Because what we can't see is true and real and substantial and eternal. The things we can see, those are temporary. David wrote in one of his Psalms where he's talking about thinking about the throne room of God in Psalm 123. He said, I lift my eyes to you, O Lord, to fix them upon the throne, to you who are enthroned in heaven. It's just reminding ourselves of what is extraordinary or, or supernatural. It helps us better navigate the ordinary. It really does. If you can remember that the world is bigger than just those bills and those forms you have to file and those deadlines, you will navigate life better. I know this sounds a little extreme and some of you are going to be like, I don't know, Patrick. But bear with me. You, you buy a new couch. And you want to keep it clean, and so there's a really intense rule. You set the kids down. Kids, you shall not be eating food on our new couch. And then about an hour later, they've got a full cup of red Kool-Aid, and they trip or push each other, and there's red Kool-Aid all over the couch. And you just get, like, over-the-top annoyed. And maybe some of you have had this, like, man... I'm a dummy. Here's my child who is eternal, who will exist forever, and who, is, who I am helping shape and form into a human one day that will have some impact on the world, and I'm more concerned about the stupid couch. Now, some of you are like, Patrick, I've had that happen, and it is super annoying, and I still have the stain, and I'm still mad at my kid about that 20 years later. I get it. Life still happens. We still have to clean up the messes. But if we could contextualize normal, everyday life in light of the reality that exists around us, I think we would navigate this life better. We have to fix our eyes on what we can't see. If I'm just living below, then those things are overwhelming. And we've all seen people just lose it at normal, everyday circumstances. And I think that's because that's all they have in life. All they have in life is their spot on the highway and to let anybody else merge in. That's all they have to hold on to. 
Well, no wonder we get overwhelmed and angry and upset and we lose it. And the biggest thing in our lives are every four years we have to elect another president because that's all we have. But if there's a bigger spiritual reality that John reminds us of, then maybe we can navigate life here and now better. Maybe we should take a deep breath of reality every once in a while. What would that do to the things that we worry about? You know, the Bible teaches us that, because that a lot of people worry about death. It's, it ranks pretty high up there on, their, on the things that concern them. It's, it's right near public speaking. I think it's actually right below public speaking. I heard one time people are more afraid of public speaking than death. But if we, if we really read what the scriptures talk about, these guys weren't deterred from doing what God had asked them to do by death. Because they were looking at the bigger reality. But if this is all we got, if this is all we have, well, we got to hold tightly to it. So we get this glimpse in chapter 4 of this throne room. But we're not in the throne room for fun. This isn't the part of the heavenly tour and like, well, here's the throne room. Here's where God sits. Here's where the 24 angels. Here's all the weird stuff here. We're not here for fun. We're here for a reason. Like if you get called into the principal's office, there's something happened. He just didn't call you in to say hi. Hopefully he's telling you you got a scholarship, good job, or commendation. But that was never the case for me. It was always bad things. And in this case, there's something negative happening too that God wants to reveal to John. So chapter 5. So we're going to look at chapter, that was chapter 4. Now we're going to look at chapter 5. And I want you to just see a bit of it. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to see a bit of it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. John is a big fan of the concept of seven. It's metaphoric in a lot of ways. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. Verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. Verse 4, John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Again, Hebrew Bible. This is all Isaiah 11, actually. Hebrew Bible. Do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So he heard this, the lion, there's a lion coming. Then I turned and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This weird setting. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Oof, that's not the normal lamb appearance. And that's also Isaiah chapter 11. The, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. By the way, all this stuff, the sevens are especially weird. And if I get give you like just a two-second overview. Seven is a special number going all the way back to the book of Genesis where the, the creation was complete and it was perfect and it was full on day seven. And so seven represents that completeness, that perfection, that fullness. And so horns are about power and ruling. And so here is this lamb. This is such a juxtaposition and John's writing it intentionally. Here is this lamb looking as if it has been slain, but yet it has perfect and complete power. And it's got the perfect and complete spirit of God, full of the spirit. That's what he's trying to get at in this symbolic language. Verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
Now, if there were a soundtrack to the Bible, this part of the Bible would have like an epic soundtrack. It would be all like violins and trumpets because this is a really cool moment and all the weirdness maybe puts us off a little bit, but it's a really cool moment. It would be this epic, triumphant music. Let me walk through this with you. Um, I play basketball with a group of guys um, on Sunday nights. We use a gym at a local church, and so after the first game, they pause the action, and everybody has to gather up and pray. Now, not all the guys that come are Christians or believers, at least in some way, but it's surprising how into the prayer time that these guys who aren't churchgoers get. These guys get open and vulnerable with a bunch of other guys in a room and say, will you pray about this, pray about this other thing? Just in the last six months in that group of guys, one guy lost his wife who was 40 years old and it leaves him alone with two teenage kids. It's not, it's not okay. That's not life as it should, should be. Another guy uh, was diagnosed with cancer for the third time. And he said, I'm going to start my treatments. And then we saw him two weeks later and we were like, what, what, what happened? How are you here? And he's like, well, they're trying this experimental thing. I feel fine. I'm going to play as long as I feel good. All right, great. And he said, but could you pray for my wife? She just had a stroke. And you're just like, what in the world? Like, you feel like you're talking to Job here. Like, life is hard. This is not life as it should be. This is not ideal circumstances. So they know I work at a church, so occasionally I'll get asked to pray, and sometimes I'll get asked questions from these guys, like, how do I process this? What do I think about this? What is going on? And it's hard to have these conversations about real, raw life with people sometimes, because it's hard. Life, <laughs> life is hard. Life is not great. It's certainly not for these guys, but not for a lot of people. I know all all of you could raise your hand and say, well, I have this thing, I have this thing, or my friend, or my life, or whatever. It's, it's not as it should be. None of that seems like life as it should be. And not an insignificant amount of human misery is caused by other humans. You, anybody ever watch like a true crime documentary and you're just like, oh, humans are awful sometimes. They're terrible. I know some of you love the true crime podcasts. I know it's freaking you out because around every corner is a serial killer who's a psychopath. Sometimes you, you, you listen to those or watch those and you're like, okay, that guy, that guy is not fit for human life. Throw him in prison. Throw away the key. He should not be around anymore. And then the documentary will do this thing. They'll say, well, he was a terrible person. Let's talk about his childhood. And then you find out that this awful person that you want to despise had a terrible childhood themselves. And the reason they are the way they are is because someone else did something to them. And there's just this endless carousel of human misery and pain. And it's just awful. And you read the news, you watch those documentaries, whatever it is. And it's like we have this problem in the world that doesn't feel like there's a solution. And if you let it get to you and you don't distract yourself with other things, you can see why John would weep and weep. You can see why he would feel overwhelmed that there's this problem and there's no one that can step up and create a solution. We try every few years. We try to find, oh, this human will fix it finally for all of us. And then they fail don't they? And that's going to happen ad nauseum because humans are always going to fail. We are never going to be able to stop this, this, this mess that we create. I was reading a commentary this week and I just thought this author put it so eloquently. I wanted to read you what he wrote. He says, he says, we feel ourselves caught up in the world's misery. 
and we cannot break free. Some of us become rigid determinists, and we at all times feel a sense of hopelessness and helplessness in the grip of forces stronger than we. The world's agony is real, and the world's inability to break free from the consequences of its guilt is real. Now, some of you are like, okay, I, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a dark characterization of the world, Patrick. I mean, I'm an optimist at heart. I truly am. I like to think people are good, and this is, even talking about this, I'm like, is this, is it really that bad? I mean, is humanity at the bottom of this dark pit? That seems a bit bleak, Patrick. Now, I agree. There are glimpses of a better reality, right? Every once in a while, you'll see someone do something that just seems so kind and sacrificial and generous that you're like, oh, I see glimpses of something bigger and something better. Isn't that what we talked about in chapter 4? We see glimpses of a bigger reality, but the surface reality is this carousel of, of human pain and misery and disaster. When uh, things started happening in Ukraine, I was really concerned and upset, and I would read the news every day like, this is awful, this terrible thing is happening, it's terrible. And you know what? Now I'm kind of used to it. And when I see a news article, I scroll right by, scroll right by, because I've gotten used to the human misery. I know a lot of us struggle with that, where that just becomes the norm, and we're no longer bothered by it. We've gotten used to being at the, the bottom in this ugliness. And again, if you think like, ah, that's, I mean, that can't be right. That can't, that doesn't sound right, Patrick. Near our house is a uh, park called Carver Lake Park, and it's awesome. It's got mountain bike trails and hiking trails, and it's got a, a lake, and it's got a beach on the lake. And I walk down there all the time, and I was down there the other day, and they have these big, huge signs posted outside the lake that say, do not swim in the lake. And then they say, why? They say there was a sewage leak, and we believe there's raw sewage in the lake. Now, I took a picture, and it didn't turn out well, so I didn't put it up. But guess what? I took a picture of the sign that says, do not swim, there's raw sewage. And guess what was happening right behind the sign in the lake? People were swimming! There was a sign that said, do not swim, and people were swimming. Do you not think that humans can get used to living at the bottom of a deep, dark pit? Yeah, we can. Hey, raw sewage, dive right in, kids. That's not a Snickers bar in the water. What is going on? <laughs> Humans can get used to that. I'm going to get an email about that, aren't I? Shoot. Shoot. Rewind, rewind. And I think the worst part about it is when I read this dark news and then we've taken that misery and we've politicized it. And we said, you know what, that misery is actually supporting my cause and the people on the other side of the aisle are a bunch of dummies. And we've taken someone's pain and instead of saying, hey, how can we alleviate that pain? We're using that tragedy to further some agenda that sometimes has nothing to do with that tragedy. And to me, that's tragedy upon tragedy. So let's zoom back up to the scroll room, the throne room of heaven. There's a scroll. God has a plan for solving, for fixing human misery, to set everything right, to put everything back on the right path. But nobody is worthy to take the scroll. We're all down at the bottom of this pit. We're all looking up and our hands are all covered in mud because we've caused problems. Every time we, we lie to get, our, to get ourselves out of trouble at the cost of somebody else, 
or every time we hurt someone else to make ourselves feel a little better, we've compromised ourselves and we've covered ourselves in dirt and mud and we cannot climb out of this pit ourselves. The only person that can do it is someone who's clean. The Bible uses this archaic word sin to describe the harm that, that humans cause one another. We've all gotten dirt on our hands. We've all gotten mud on our hands and we don't have a way to climb out of this deep dark hole unless there is someone who has kept themselves clean unless there's someone who is fully good and fully true and fully human but also fully pure and fully loving unless there's someone who can climb out and pull the rest of us out we're in trouble verse 5 chapter 5 then one of the elders said to me do not weep See, this, the lion, the tribe of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has triumphed. He made it. And he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And God's plan for saving humanity can be put into action. I heard there was a lion, but I turned and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And I mean, this, this reality goes against every way that we're conditioned to think. But it, Revelation, in this really poetic, symbolic way, tells us that Jesus conquers through sacrifice. We want to conquer through domination. We want, we want to destroy our enemies. We want to force people to do what we want and live the way that we want and make the choices that we would make. That's how we would do it. And Jesus says that's not the way it's going to be accomplished. The only way is through sacrifice and submission and serving others. That's how you conquer. And it's this reality that's laid out for us in Scripture that we have such a hard time wrapping our mind around. We just want to destroy our enemies. There is a way out. And you can understand why these angels are singing, why the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice say, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, verse 11, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice. Imagine the, the, how loud this would be. You would have to wear earplugs to this worship service. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise because there's a way out of this human misery. There's a way out for all of us. There's a way out of the bottom of the pit. We have, we've, we have a lamb that was slain that can save us. And everything we read about in Revelation, the whole book of Revelation is anchored in the realities revealed in chapters 4 and 5. But so many of us have just gotten used to life at the bottom. We're kind of fine with it. We're fine with it. If we're just used to life down here and we forget that there's a big reality up there, well, then we're never going to try to lift ourselves up out of it because we've gotten used to it. We've gotten used to swimming in Carver Lake with the sewage. There's a bigger reality. And the truth is, it doesn't look great, and humans aren't going to save ourselves. Our politics are not going to save us. There's no program in the world that is going to save the world. Humans cannot save the world. But there is a lamb who looked as if he was slain. And if we follow him, if we live like him, if we treat other people like, like he treated people, there is a way out for us and we can bring people out with us. That's the reality of the book of Revelation. And it's about, we're going to get into chapters uh, 7 and beyond, or 6 and beyond, and it is weird. We haven't even hit the weird stuff yet. It gets super weird. And we're going to cover a big chunk of the book of Revelation next week. But we have to understand that it's all anchored in this reality, that there's a bigger truth 
You don't have to get used to, to life as it is. You can get used to something better. They're going to keep making true crime documentaries from now into when Jesus comes back because there's always going to be people who want to make things worse. But you don't have to be part of that. You don't have to be part of that carousel of pain. You don't have to play that game because of Jesus. You don't have to be part of that. There's, there's, there's a universe that we can't see that we have to fix our eyes on. And there's a lamb who looks as if he was slain that is willing to rescue us if we're willing to follow.